Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Welcome back, everybody, to our 21st episode. It's early May, and in the midst of PJM's annual meeting week, where some significant changes are afoot. Two board members have reached their maximum allowable tenure on the board, and a third, who is up for re-election, has decided to leave to take a job that would be a conflict of interest. So by the end of the week, we'll have two new board members and a vacancy that's expected to be filled by July. Add to that several major disruptions to PJM's market structure caused by orders from the recently refocused FERC we've discussed in previous episodes, and it all adds up to a period of chaotic urgency ahead, which for PJM isn't all that unusual, so perhaps this is just another indication of life getting back to normal. I'm your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me as always is a man unfazed by all the chaos, Glenn Thomas. Glenn, <laughs> Medina Spirit won the Kentucky Derby at 15 to 1 odds, but the real question is, have you placed any wagers on who the third new board member will be? <laughs> no, I haven't done that um, for sure, and uh, I don't know if unfazed is the right, the right adjective, uh, but <laughs> it, it, certainly, it certainly is chaotic here, and uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm more cranky and fired up than anything because uh, uh, there's a lot going on, and there's, there, I mean, I mean we, we have a tremendous history here in PJM, and I'm trying to recall a time when so many big issues were in play in the RTO, <laughs> and I'm not sure... Uh, sure, I can identify him, but uh, hopefully we'll get him right here and uh, keep these markets moving forward. Interesting times, as they always like to say. Glenn, we have a great guest this month, as always, but this is a particularly great guest because you will be able to speak on a lot of these topics from a, an independent perspective. So, Glenn, would you do the honors of introducing our guest this month? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a true pleasure to welcome back to the GT Power Hour, Joe Bowring, the market monitor for PJM. Uh, Joe's been monitoring PJM's markets for several decades um, and has been a constant (laughs) source of wisdom, guidance and insight uh, as PJM goes through its many uh, phases, iterations and evolution. So, Joe Bowring, welcome back to the GT Power Hour. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, well, Joe, you first appeared here on uh, episode four of our podcast, our very first guest, in fact. And last time you were here, the Moper order was our leadoff topic. And guess what? It is again. Uh, you are an elite company in the GT Power Hour two-timers club with Commissioner Chatterjee and Chairman Glick, who made his second appearance last month. Uh, we, we had a great session with him and got into some challenging issues that we thought would be interesting to continue exploring. So here's what we're going to do. We've got three clips of comments Chairman Glick made in the last episode, and we want your reaction to each of them. Glenn, as always, feel free to chime in as the mood strikes you. Here we go. Clip one. I've been frustrated because I think people continuously look at the capacity markets more as a piggy bank than as a way to actually achieve resource adequacy. And I think we need to fix that. One of the things we need to do is is figure out a way to fix the energy and ancillary services markets so that we're actually compensating the actual value that either generators or providers of, of ancillary services provide to the market, as opposed to increasing our emphasis on the capacity markets and essentially paying generators for sitting there and waiting to be needed, as opposed to actually when they actually do provide value to the market. So Joe, what do you think? 
Can energy and ancillary services markets be fixed in a way to reduce dependence on capacity markets? No. <laughs> All right. That's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry. So, there, I mean, there, there are a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, as I think was pointed out in your, your uh, session with Chairman Glick, as we see more renewables and more zero marginal cost energy, uh, energy prices are going to go down, not up. So the idea that somehow we can make energy prices higher in order to reduce the need for capacity market is really asking for a truly administrative intervention in the market. And I think it's a mistake. So ORDC, for example, is an administrative intervention. You don't have to pay too much attention in Texas to realize that the state public utility commission was setting the price for long periods of time and causing significant issues in that market. So that was under their ORDC. They were setting the price administratively. It was not a market mechanism. So although some have said that the capacity market is not a market, it clearly is a market. All these markets have administrative elements to them, but I do not believe it's possible to, and it's not appropriate to, somehow try to increase energy and ancillary service prices as a way to make the capacity market less relevant. I don't think its role has been growing, but its role is appropriate. If you look at the level of revenues from the capacity market and energy market, the energy market still predominates. So all, all of these mechanisms are a way of paying units enough to be sure that they are there when they're needed. So in a way, they're all paying units to be sure that they can provide the services that are needed when they are needed. And sometimes they're going to operate, sometimes they're not. It would be wonderful to have a market design that paid people only when they were actually used, but no one has come up with a good way to do that yet. Joe, I'm, I want you to respond to the thought that, because um, I'm sure you're seeing it in your analysis of the market, but I'm guessing some of these capacity resources are only running a handful of hours a year, um, but they're still providing value to the grid because those hours that they are running, they're truly needed to run. Is that fair? Yeah, no, it it is. Um, I mean, it's it's also it is also true, as I think Chairman Glick was suggesting, that some of the incentives around the capacity market are less than perfect, and the way that PGM has enforced some of the rules is less than perfect at the moment. PGM is not really enforcing the perimeter limited schedule rules. They're not really enforcing the requirement for capacity resources to be flexible. They're allowing, PGM is allowing units to avoid the perimeter limited requirements entirely through their RTV filing. Uh, and they're paying units uplift when, even when they're not following dispatch. So there, there are lots of ways to enforce the current rules, to tweak the capacity market rules further, to ensure that customers are really getting what they're paying for, that they're getting the flexibility. But you're right, there are going to be resources that run only a very small number of hours and in, in years when weather is really moderate, may not run at all. But in years when the weather is intense, either in the winter or the summer, they will run more. And that's what that is what they're there for. And I assume these units are coming into the energy market at prices prices lower than what we would see if we were getting into the demand response resources as well. So isn't there a an, an economic consideration here too? Sure. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the capacity resources offer at, uh, at relatively low prices. It, I mean, it, it is possible to also. I mean, there there are two sides to many of these arguments. So. On the capacity market, it's possible to engage in the strategy where you put in high price-based offers all the time, hardly ever run, and get paid a capacity price. I think we have to figure out a way to not let that happen because that is that is falling into the kind of trap that the chairman was talking about. But interestingly, when we when he talks about 
uh, the capacity market being a piggy bank. It's interesting that some of the intermittent resources, I think, are are actually thinking of the capacity market in that way. So we have to be careful because the capacity market looks like a source of revenue to lots of uh, potential participants. And it's essential to ensure that what we're buying there is a homogeneous resource that's actually contributing to reliability, contributing to flexibility. So I think it's fair to say that we need to work on the capacity market rules to make sure we're getting what we pay for. Okay, clip two. As we rely more on intermittent resources such as wind and solar, we're going to need more flexibility. And there are various ways to incent or, um, again, compensate that flexibility uh, for the value that the flexibility, assets that provide flexibility provide um, the grid. I don't necessarily uh, believe that capacity markets are the best way to do it. Certainly, there's one way to address that. I do think we need to look at our ancillary services and energy markets as well and figure out a way that those markets need to be fixed as well to address the idea that we may not be providing enough incentives now for flexible resources to stay on the grid. Okay, Joe, so what do you think? Should we be developing sure. a new flexibility product in PJM? No, no. My, again, my answer is no. Um, I mean, I appreciate what the chairman is saying. That is, we want more flexibility. That should be part of the capacity market design. But what's interesting is as you add more intermittents to the capacity market, those intermittents themselves are not very flexible. So there has to be a way to ensure that in the capacity market, we are distinguishing between or among resources and their and their attributes. So in concept, the capacity market product should be homogeneous, but to the extent it's not, those resources that are more flexible and have the ability to operate 8760 on call should be compensated appropriately. It's certainly true that Price signals in the energy market should be continuously reviewed for possible enhancements, but you shouldn't you shouldn't be doing that in, in an effort to simply shift revenues to energy markets. And I think I've mentioned some of the enhancements. For example, I mean expanding expanding real time unit commitment would be another way to to improve the energy market. To actually have an algorithmic definition of falling dispatch, to clarify the uplift rules, to ensure the use of flexible offer parameters. All the, all those things I think are essential. And it is true that we need to decide on ways to improve flexibility. But simply saying that that means a change to the ancillary service market, I, I don't think is correct. When PGM started talking about CP, PGM, and, as, and we were in favor of having, for example, physical requirements to have firm fuel, to either have backup fuel or to have some defined form of firm gas, that was not ultimately part of it. Similarly, there can be and should be requirements to be flexible. Those rules are not being enforced at the moment. If anything, they're being undercut. There are gas electric issues that people are not really dealing with, which also cause inflexibility. The commission allowed uplift to be paid to units that are required to be inflexible as a result of, for example, having rateable take under their gas pipeline tariff. So the, the gas electric issues also contribute to inflexibility and until those are addressed, <clears throat> the inflexibility issue is going to, going to remain. So I think, I think there are things to be done within the capacity market design to ensure that customers are getting what they're paying for. And that doesn't require new new products doesn't require paying for ramp, for example. I mean, I think people don't appreciate how difficult it is to actually to track what ramp is or to track whether people are following dispatch. At the moment, we've said repeatedly that PGM does not have an algorithmic way to determine whether units are following dispatch and are paying people who are not following dispatch. It's difficult to see how, how we get from that situation to one in which we're paying people for ramp. When you think about a combined cycle, PGM has recognized for 20 years that combined cycle modeling is inadequate to the nature of that technology, and it remains inadequate to the nature of that technology. People use ramp rates in ways to avoid actually switching from 
one mod to another and to effectively withhold from the market. So while I agree that having more flexibility is a good thing, I think there's a way to pay for that within the capacity market design, but there are also just some real technical issues that have to be solved in order to ensure that we really can get and measure those kinds of results. Yeah. Hey, Joe, as, as you look at sort of PJM's fuel mix and, and, and uh, generation mix right now, do you, do you worry that there's not enough flexibility on the system? I mean, you, you, you can see what's in the queue. You can see what's in the ground. Do you see flexibility being a hole in these markets 10 years from now? Uh, I don't, but a, a key part of that is that is there, there will be physical flexibility. The question is whether the market pays for it, whether the market doesn't pay for its absence, whether the market and the tools allow the units to express their flexibility. Right now, it's very difficult for a combined cycle to be modeled in such a way that it shows the market its full flexibility and the market can choose among a, a range of options from combined cycles. So I mean, there's been a lot of talk about combined cycle modeling, but it's still unresolved. Combined cycles are immensely flexible pieces of equipment. There are a lot of gas-fired combined cycles or continue to be more. I think those will provide the flexibility needed, but having the rules and the technology to be able to take advantage of all that is really the, is really the challenge. And, and one of the points I make about the queue is that you know, there's lots of talk about how much, how many megawatts of renewables there are in the queue. But one of the points we made in the recent State of the Market report is that when you account for the actual completion rate of renewables historically, and then you account for the derating factors, which are actually be even lower under ELCC, only a very small proportion of that, something like 10% or so, even less than 10% is actually going to make it into the ground as capacity. So even though there are a lot of renewables in the queue, I do not see that having a really significant effect on the overall mix of capacity for quite some time. It will it will happen, but it's going to take a bit longer than people think. Got it. So, I mean, you're certainly not seeing a tremendous sense of urgency around this flexibility product. I mean, is that fair? I don't want to put words in your mouths, but that's kind yeah, of no, what I, I don't, you're saying. I don't, I, don't see, I don't see urgency around a flexibility product, but I do see urgency around ensuring that the signals are, are correct now. And I think right. the signals, if anything, that PGM has been implementing and filing at FERC have done the opposite of that. I mean, the recent RTV filing allows units to entirely avoid the parameter-limited schedule rules, which are inappropriate. We filed that at the commission. But if we're going to talk about flexibility, everyone should think think about, PGM and the decision makers at FERC should think about each rule as part of the broader whole. I mean, one of the one of the key things to remember about all these markets is they're all interconnected. You can't separate one piece from another. And, and thinking about RTVs or parameter limit schedules separately from the entire complex of issues about the capacity market and the energy market and ancillary service markets is a mistake. You need to think about them all together because anytime you change one of them, they have it has effects on the others. All right. Clip three. Which is why, again, I think the preferable option is for PJM and the stakeholders to work on something that uh, they could send to us that we could review under Section 205 of the Federal Power Act. Having said that, I do understand the stakeholder process sometimes gets messy and sometimes gets delayed, and uh, there's not always enough consensus developed for something to be presented to FERC. If that's the case, I do think we have a, an obligation under the law to step in and act under Section 206 of the Federal Power Act to ensure that the markets are just and reasonable and not unduly discriminatory. And from my perspective, we should be doing that, but only uh, only until we know that uh, the, PJM, the PJM stakeholder process won't actually bring something to the commission. So, Joe, what do you think? Will PJM be able to submit a 205 filing in time? Okay, so I'm a notoriously bad uh, prognosticator about these things, <laughs> but I would say I would say there's less than a 50% chance that the PGM stakeholders will bring something to the commission. Remember, there so there are three possible options. One is PGM members bring something that makes sense to the 
commission. Another is PGM members being something that doesn't make sense to the commission, CELCC, for example. And the third is that the commission decides on its own. So I think there's a better than even chance the commission will decide this on its own. It's made The commission's made very clear, I think, or at least the chairman has, how they would rule on MOPR. So unless the PGM stakeholders come up with something very similar to that, I would expect the commission to act. Sort of on that topic, PJM has proposed largely scrapping the existing MOPR in favor of a good faith presumption that all state actions aren't intended to impact market dynamics and that PJM will only mitigate such offers after FERC orders it in response to a complaint filed with them. Do you like the direction that PJM is headed with its MOPA reform proposal? So at a high level, I think they're fine. Um, Remember, however, that PJM is responding to its perception, I think correctly, of the commission that the commission wants to recognize. And I think they have no choice. And it makes sense to recognize the role of the states in setting policy and, in fact, determining for themselves the mix of generation in their own state. So I think we have to start with that assumption under the Federal Power Act, the states have that authority. I don't think you have to talk about good faith or intent or anything like that in these rules. I think there should just be clean rules and not making assumptions about people's intent and not trying to judge on people's intent. Remember that the original Hughes decision was about states acting to suppress the price very explicitly. So I don't, I don't think it's necessary to say anything about intent. Uh, I do think it's appropriate for the new rules to recognize that the states have the authority over their generation mix and can subsidize resources, and those resources can offer into the market with all the attendant effects. So as a general matter, but for the their characterization of intent, I think where PGM is going basically makes sense. They realize that there has to be a Hughes test of some kind tying and tethering. They realize that there has to be some form of a test about long and short. I do think those make sense. I think, I mean, as an example, I think one of the one of the examples that came up was how to treat bilaterals. And if a bilateral contract requires someone to bid in a particular way, how would you deal with that? I think that should be a violation of the rule and be subject to MOPR. So Joe, following up on that, how, I mean, you, you mentioned about how subsidized resources should be viewed. How should unsubsidized resources be thinking about a market, you know, being in a market where basically subsidization of your competitors can basically be allowed without limitation if the PJM proposal goes through? Right. So, I mean, again, I'm, I'm not, I don't think of that as so much as a PJM proposal as for better or worse the commission is recognizing that the states have the authority to set their resource mix, that even if the commission designed a perfect market, the states have the ability to leave it, to leave the capacity market under FR or even leave PJM. So, and a number of states have made clear they're going to take that seriously. So the commission's response, which I think is logical, is that given the states have that authority, we have to recognize it. And the unavoidable conclusion is if the states decide to subsidize resources, those will uh, enter into the market. Now, I think it's also essential to be realistic about that. Of course, that will suppress prices. Of course, that will make it more difficult to compete with those resources. I think that renewable resources are, are largely competitive now, will only become more competitive. And so the the need for state subsidies for most renewable resources will diminish very quickly. But those who are investing private capital without a benefit of state subsidies, I do think have reason to be concerned because prices will be lower as a result of state subsidies than it would have been without. But I don't think there's any way to avoid that happening. Okay. So what you're saying is almost investor beware. If you're putting at-risk capital in the PJM markets, you're going to be facing significantly more risk for your investment thesis to be undercut 
moving forward. I mean, that's what I'm hearing you say. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think I think there is a there is a risk of facing lower prices than would be faced otherwise. I mean, I think for the immediate future, that risk is pretty small. <clears throat> and to the extent that renewable resources are competitive, which I expect they will be, even going farther forward, I think the risk is still remains pretty small. And even with all the offshore wind, when you add up all the offshore wind, even the most dramatic projections, and then recognize the derating, it's not an overwhelming amount of capacity. So it will affect prices at the margin, but I don't think in a way that will make it uneconomic for private capital to continue to compete. Yeah, I feel like that segues very well into the next question that we had on tap, which was, do you foresee the MOPR having a significant impact in either this month's BRA, in the one coming up in December, or the June 2022 one? Yeah, so I mean, so we we have said that we don't see significant impacts in the in the the series of rapid fire capacity market auctions to the extent there would likely to be an effect is likely to be after that. So, I mean, for example, the offshore wind is not going to likely to be in the market in that time frame. Some of these other resources will be, but so far it's a relatively small amount of resources that we see actually entering the capacity market. And the impact will also turn on the derating factors and whether they're the ELCC derating factors or the existing derating factors. Going back to something you said to the prior question, I mean, you're basically conceding that the capacity market price will not, I mean, obviously depends on the level of subsidization that occurs. And if we don't see a lot of subsidization, you know, no harm, no foul, but as subsidization increases with, with every, you know, new subsidy, if you will, that undercuts the capacity market price even further. Are you concerned about the viability of capacity markets? I mean, you've talked about the race to the bottom. I mean, you've said that in many of your comments. I mean, are are we just heading off on that road and with our fingers crossed at this point? Is that is hope our strategy now, Joe? Uh, I, I hope not. Uh, no, I don't. I don't, I don't yeah, think good it is. answer. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Okay. Couldn't resist. Couldn't resist. Uh, no, I, I don't. I don't think it is. But uh, I mean, in concept, subsidies could entirely undercut the market. I don't think that will happen. Based on what we know about the economics of renewals, I don't expect it will happen. But there's also an, an upside to keeping these resources in the market. So ensuring that we continue to have a centrally cleared capacity market with all resources being subject to PGM's reliability tests on a locational basis, that the capacity resources, wherever whatever their sources have defined contributions to reliability, then PGM continue to manage that reliability and that all capacity resources have the same performance requirements. So I think it is a benefit to maintain the capacity market with the current type of rules, precisely because it keeps everyone on the same with, with the same set of rules, recognizing, of course, what we've been saying, which is that some resources are going to be subsidized and some not. But even given that, it's essential to have a centrally cleared, transparent capacity market with a single set of rules that apply to everybody. And as an example, I mean, bilateral markets simply are not realistic. And I have yet to hear anyone propose a bilateral transaction they could not do within the framework of a transparent capacity market. It's clearly having transparent markets with transparent price signals is clearly a much better way to enable bilateral transactions than having an opaque market where sellers have asymmetric access to information and can take advantage of buyers that way. Yeah, no, I agree completely on the bilateral point. And you've made that many times. And I think it's an excellent one that, you know, I think you should keep making. You know, I'm intrigued by this, this con- comment, though, that, you know, there's a benefit to keeping these resources in the capacity market, even though they're you know bidding in at zero, because then they could be accountable. But one of the things you pointed out, as I recall in the state of the market report, is 
a lot of intermittents are forsaking the capacity market. And I assume it's because of these accountability standards. How do you see that tension playing out? So historically, uh, not very many renewables actually wanted to participate in the capacity market, but that, that seems to be changing somewhat. So we have a combination of renewables and the broader category of intermittents, including batteries. Some of these resource types are looking for revenues and the capacity market seems like an obvious source of revenue. So I think we will see uh, increased attempts to participate in the capacity market by the broader category of intermittents. I'm not sure if that was answering your question or not. So. Well, uh, maybe I misinterpreted what you said in the state of the market report, but I, I, I thought I heard you saying in there when you looked at the numbers, hey, we have all these intermittents, but only a kind of a fraction of them are participating in the capacity market. Oh, oh, oh the question is why, you know, right, were they not right. participating because their, their money wasn't enough? And I think you're saying no to that. So is it the accountability standards? Is it the performance standards? Yeah, so sorry. No, what, what I was trying to say, what we were trying to say in the state of the market board is that when you translate the 130 or 140,000 megawatts of renewables and intermittents in the queue, you come down to something less than 10,000 actually showing up as capacity. But that's not because they're not choosing not to participate. It's because there's a very low success rate historically from renewables and intermittents in the queue. That could change, but that's the historical data. And then following that, there's a there's a significant derating that occurs. If you take account of just both those facts, failure to complete and derating, you get to a pretty small number. It's not that they are not participating in the market. It's just that the degree to which they are likely to participate given historical data is pretty low. So does the capacity market survive all of these changes? Yes, I, th- I think it does. Uh, I mean, I think the capacity market is going to remain essential. And I think, you know, everyone would love to have an energy only market that provided all the right signals in real time at every moment. And and resources could survive that way. But when you have a situation where you have to have reliability and society has chosen to have a very high level of reliability in the energy market, that means you're always going to be long in the energy market. It means that in a competitive market, which is what we have, you're going to have marginal resources setting prices at their short-run marginal costs, which means they can't, by definition, recover their going forward costs, let alone their fixed costs. And you need a, you need a capacity market or a mechanism like that to provide the opportunity to recover those costs. Otherwise, people won't invest and won't remain in business. We actually saw that. We were beginning to see that prior to 2007 when we had CTs who were running to failure simply because they were, were not covering even their going forward costs. So, yes, I, I, th- I think it will survive. Uh, I think it's essential that it survive. And there is yet yet to be demonstrated a, a better model, a model that does what the PGM market does anywhere in the country, if not the world. Yeah, and that last point is a terrific point. Can you, can you expand on that? Because, I mean, obviously, there are other, other market structures in this country. You know, we saw Texas and how that worked this year, California, MISO, New York, New England. I mean, is there a reason to to put PJM on a little bit of pedestal when you compare its market design to to others out there? Yeah, I, I think there is. I think PJM's market design is clearly better than the rest. So in no particular order. So California doesn't really have a market. They're relying on bilateral contracts to build capacity and with all the issues that people are familiar with. MISO doesn't have a market. They rely on cost of service regulation for capacity revenues. That's why their capacity market can clear, clear at a dollar or whatever recently cleared at. SPP, the same thing. It's not truly a market. It's not a self-sustaining market. It relies uh, heavily on cost of service regulation. And New England is probably the closest to the PGM market, and they've had a number of non-market interventions. There were special winter provisions, for example. Uh, New York also relies on single-state directions to build capacity, again, not relying entirely on the capacity market for signals. So so PGM is unique 
and I think uh, superior in the, to the extent that PGM's market is designed to be internally self-sustaining, what I regard as truly a market. That is purely from the internal sets of signals. PGM is, is providing the right kinds of signals. Now, of course, that's going to be affected somewhat going forward, as we've talked about, by by state subsidies. But nonetheless, that's been the PGM model, and I think that's why it's worked. The notion that we should rely on an administrative demand curve for energy, arbitrarily setting prices at very high levels for very short periods of time, misunderstands the way that either investors or customers see prices and incentives. And I think that's one of the things that was demonstrated in Texas. I've always said I would, I'd love the Texas experiment to work, but I think what we saw there demonstrates that super high prices for actually fairly extended periods of time are not a very reasonable way to incent investment or customer response. I agree with that completely. And I, I love your optimism, Joe, calling PJM's capacity construct unique, superior, and likely to survive. <laughs> so um, I, I love your optimism. <laughs> Let's uh, take a tangent on that, but same topic. What about the market seller offer cap, the so-called MSOC? FERC finally took up your complaint. It only took two years. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you pressed for delinking the estimated penalty assessment intervals that are used to calculate the cap to decrease the cap without increasing the penalty rate that the PAIs are also used for. Um, but PJM appears to be happy to ride on ISO New England's coattails and propose a modified version of their recalibration method that FERC recently approved for that market. You recently said that you think that approach is illogical. Why is that? Um, so the market seller offer cap, as you've said, is set at the wrong level, given the actual number of performance assessment intervals. And in fact, I think what's actually been demonstrated, given the way PGM markets have been working, is the capacity performance paradigm isn't really working in PGM. There have been effectively no performance assessment intervals. To the extent there have been some, they, they were called inappropriately. And PGM relies on a very subjective trigger for PAI, unlike in New England, where there's, a, there's an objective trigger based on level of reserves. So the problem is that as PI gets lower and lower, close to zero, the penalty rate approaches infinity. It gets very, very high. And for all the reasons we talked about in Texas, I don't think it makes sense at the moment that penalty rate's around 3,000. I don't make, think it makes sense to make it 9,000 or higher because that simply adds to the risk that a generator during a PAI whose unit fails adds to the risk that generator faces. And I don't think that level of incentive has a productive effect on the market or likely to affect investment in a positive way. So what this implies to us is that uh, if you just look at the math of capacity performance, the market seller offer cap simply reduces to net avoidable cost plus or minus the bonus or penalty payments. Uh, and the ACR includes a risk component and the bonus and penalty payments include a risk component. PGM appears to want a particular result rather than to maintain any particular market logic. And so they've said, well, New England uses some historical clearing prices as a way to bound it. So let's do that. But that didn't make any sense for the historical EANS offset, which FERC finally agreed to after many years of both PGM and the market monitor saying that to FERC. And it doesn't make any more sense here. In the last auction, there was market power exercise. Why would it make sense to use those prices and build in market power into this one? To me, it makes sense to use market logic, to use the definition of, a, of the marginal cost of capacity, which is net avoidable cost, and simply follow through the logical consequences of the market. So again, I think PGM is simply searching for a result that they want rather than trying to follow through the market logic. Okay. I mean, Joe, obviously you teed up a bunch of intricate issues there. Do you see this getting straightened out in time for the December auction? 
Yes, I, th I think it can certainly happen. I mean, I, th I think I think recognizing the logic of CP and saying that it does not make sense to have a really high penalty rate, which is what's implied by the number of performance assessment intervals we've actually observed or even can reasonably expect. So let's just say you expect 10 performance assessment hours and we continue to use 30 to, to define the penalty, then by definition, the market seller offer cap devolves to net avoidable cost. So Yes, I think it's possible for the commission to resolve it to indicate it should be unit-specific ACR, to allow there to be default gross ACRs with unit-specific net revenue. And we've done it before. We know how to do it. We can handle it administratively. It's a demonstrated path forward. So yes, I think, I think the commission could deal with that issue. And I think that the market monitoring unit and PGM could deal with the, with the results of it, as well as the market, of course. Right. And let's talk about that administrative component for just a minute. I mean, by, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of triggers in advance of an auction. I mean, when do you think you would need to have this resolved so you can effectively do all these ACRs in advance of that auction? Right. So, I mean, of course, the sooner the better, but um, sometime, sometime over the summer, I would hope by July or August, it would be resolved so, so we could do that. As I said, so the, sooner, the sooner the better. I mean, the same with all these decisions. Moper, yeah. Mark Teller offer cap, right? To say the least, yes. Yeah. To say the I, mean, least. I mean, I think, I mean, I think the commission has appropriately recognized that the next auction should go forward. But one of the points we made in our market seller offer cap filing is that, and the commission made it in their ordering paragraph in the market seller offer cap order, is that counter to the uh, arguments of a certain organization called P3. <laughs> that there there is no there is no safe harbor and everyone has to be aware of that. And while you know, while I believe that almost all generators have always behaved competitively and I expect them to, everyone has to be aware that if you intend to exercise market power that there will be consequences. We we have no choice. It's our job and responsibility to file a complaint during the auction should we see that occurring. So full full disclosure for any of our listeners who aren't deep into the, the weeds on everything going on, Glenn is the president of P3 and therefore that's why it was a humorous joke. Did yeah, you want to say And that? I'll refrain from my defense. I'll refrain from my defense <laughs> of the safe harbor. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. All right. So, so Joe, recently we saw some action from FERC on the ELCC. Uh, they actually rejected PJM's proposal that was put forward by the stakeholders. They were concerned about the transition mechanism. Have you had a chance to take a look at that order and do you have any reactions to it? Yeah, we've read it. And I liked the last sentence of the first paragraph in which the commission said we reject, I don't remember the exact words, but we reject PJM's filing. So I thought that was the absolutely appropriate action. PGM's filing was a bad market design, would have locked in guaranteed floors for technology classes for 13 years. It would have been anti-innovation. It would have been uh, arbitrarily pro-battery and anti-renewables. So I think for lots of reasons, it was it was a good decision. Uh, if you read the details, a um, little bit less good, that is... Uh, the commission found that much of what PGM had proposed about the details of ELCC were correct, whereas we think they are very clearly not. But the key, the key element of the commission ruling was to reject this, the so-called transition plan, the long-term lock-in of the floors. And I, I think that was clearly the most egregious flaw. But now that that's gone, it's time to focus on some of the details about how they actually did it. And I think thinking about things from an ELCC perspective makes sense. It makes sense to try to 
objectively assess the reliability contributions of all resource types. But PGEM has clearly made some exceedingly incorrect assumptions about the way that DR will be used, the way that batteries will be used, and that has the result the result of reducing the contribution of solar and wind and increasing quite dramatically the contribution of batteries. But it's all based on assumptions. So the short answer is I think it was I think it was a good decision and it rejected the LCC. I'm a little worried about some of the positive things the commission said about the details, but we have a chance now to argue all that in front of the commission and I think that's that's a great opportunity. We'll we'll file something and I appreciate the fact that the commission is thinking carefully and critically about all these issues. Uh, I mean, one of the things that the commission has done recently with market seller offer cap and this and a whole range of other issues, and even though we don't always agree, frequently don't agree, um, I'm impressed by how thoughtful the commission's been and how carefully they're doing their analysis. Yeah, usually when those orders come out late on a Friday, um, it's usually bad news, uh, but this is <laughs> really refreshing in that, you know, yes. uh, yeah, I mean, how many times have we you seen that email pop up at like 8.30, 9 o'clock on a Friday I know. night, and you're like, I know. What, what happened now? Uh, I know, exactly. um, But on this one, it was actually a pleasant surprise i mean it was i i think you're right joe i think FERC got this one you know right and i also think you're right that um the details on this one are so so important to get right i mean this is really i think going to be the you know one of the, the the foundations of this capacity construct moving forward getting these numbers right and with each year it's going to get more and more important so um, we got to get the details right. And if it takes a little bit more time to do that, so be it. That's okay. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, we we asked the commission to order PGM to go back and think about it for, and go through a process for a year, but we'll see, we'll see what everyone files and what the commission decides. But it is, it is essential to get the concepts, as you said, the concepts and the numbers right, because this is going to define what the capacity market looks like. It's going to define in a significant way, actually, the impact of the state subsidies. And one of the points they made during the technical conference on MOPR is exactly that. So even given that you have state subsidies, it's critical that those subsidized resources have the appropriate impact on the capacity market and not an outsized one. So to the extent that they're contributing less to the capacity market than their nameplate, which is clearly true, it's essential to get the numbers right. And it's essential to get right the fact that as penetration of intermittents increase at the margin, their value, their contribution or reliability will decrease. And it's essential to take account of that marginal relationship and not pretend it's an average relationship. Okay, Joe. You know the drill. It's rapid fire time. Comments have been filed in the FERC docket on the MOPR and the capacity market. And there are some zingers. We will read the quote and we want you <laughs> to agree or disagree and state why. But we don't want even the slightest hint of bias. So we're not going to tell you ahead of time who said what. So bonus points if you can guess. I might even as, do as you, know, as you know, as you know, I'm willing to disagree with everybody. So. <laughs> well, then this might be this might be very rapid fire. Uh, I might even do a dramatic reading if the uh, inspiration hits me, but no guarantees. First up, the goal of competition is to provide customers wholesale power at the lowest possible price, but no lower. The PJM markets work. The PJM markets bring customers the benefit of competition. The PJM markets have worked to provide incentives to entry and to retain capacity. I agree. <laughs> well, good. well, that's good. That's good that you agree because you said that in the filing, Joe. Those are your words. I, so, I thought it sounded. I thought it sounded good. That, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the more that I'm reading these, I can hear the person saying them, uh, and I think I know exactly. I can get an image in my mind of who's saying this stuff. So, uh, it, it's getting it's getting pretty good. All right, next up. 
While PJM's capacity construct is not without its challenges, the general framework has worked well to achieve resource adequacy at just and reasonable rates. The commission should look to build upon the work that has been done to date, as opposed to answering the calls of those who would seek to rip apart its foundation. So I, I, I agree. I can't actually guess who that is, but I think there is a temptation whenever there are issues about the capacity market for everyone to try to bring their particular agendas to bear and to try to, as they say, to try to really change the foundation. And I, I agree that's not it's not necessary or appropriate at this point. All right, Rory, you don't want to take a guess at who said that since you can vision these whole things? <laughs> well, you know, the rip apart its foundation sounds very dramatic. And Glenn, you know, I, you're a dramatic guy. So I'm wondering if you had a hand in that at all. Wow. <laughs> Ding, ding, ding. There's a winner. Yes, that, that was me who right. said that. So, and thank goodness Joe Bowering agreed. So I we're on the same yeah. page. I love it. That was, that, was, that was risky. That was a risky move on your part. <laughs> Be playing against your own interest. All right. Third one, Joe. RPM, otherwise known as the reliability pricing model that the capacity market is based on, should act as a residual market for load-serving entity resource procurement and to provide accurate price signals with the expectation that greater reliance will be placed on energy markets? I think we know your answer here. Yeah, I mean, I don't agree. It's not a residual market. It never has been. I'm not quite sure where this, these assertions come from. I guess because it says base residual auction. Somehow people imagine that, that overrides the actual design. The actual design is everyone must sell their capacity into the market and everyone must buy from it. And that's the only way it works. I don't have an expectation that greater reliance will be placed on energy markets. It will depend on what energy market prices are. All right. Very good. That came from the Sierra Club, Sustainable FERC, and NRDC. That was what their argument was on that one. It is fundamentally unfair to those who have chosen to invest in our state without a subsidy based on a promise of a competitive market to have to compete without protection from PJM from the market distorting actions of states outside Pennsylvania's borders. Without such protection, PJM should be rightfully concerned about a race to the bottom as states seek to subsidize their home state resources lest they be rendered uneconomic due to the competition from subsidized resources in other states. I agree. It's it's true. Um, the subsidies from in other states will affect uh, prices of capacity and the competitiveness of capacity inside Pennsylvania. Yeah, and that one came from Senator Gene Yaw, Pennsylvania, chairman of the Energy and Environmental Resources Committee. So obviously he's, he's concerned about Pennsylvania here. Yeah, yeah no, I, I agree. The commission is duty-bound to ensure that buyer-side market power must also be screened for and mitigated in exactly the same manner as supply-side market power. That is, the application of supply-side market power screens and mitigation should be symmetric as much as possible with market power screens and mitigation for buyer-side market power. So as a general matter, I agree, but there are two internally inconsistent screens in that statement. So exactly the same manner is not consistent with as much as possible. So I agree that the commission should be focusing on buyer side market power as well as supply side market power. It's been less 
pervasive, certainly, but that it is essential that the commission market monitors, PJM, uh, focus on and think about and have tests for buyer-side market power as well as supplier-side. And would you agree that those tests, it sounds like you would, should be objective and not subjective and not evaluating intent, but there should be some objective criteria on the buy side as well as the supply side. I mean, there are on the supply side right now. Right. So intent, intent-based screens don't really work in my experience. So I, I agree that it should not be intent-based. It should be as objective as possible. Got it. Perfect. And that came from actually former PJM economist, Dr. Paul Sakevich. You probably could guess right. that one, Joe. I, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> if a material fraction of resources price their capacity offers relying on the selective receipt of subsidies, then other sellers in PJM's interstate market that do not receive subsidies will receive an artificially suppressed, unjust, and unreasonable rate. Competitive entry will face a significant added barrier. New subsidies will be encouraged, and one state's policy choices could contribute to a crowding out of other competitive resources and resulting policy choices on which other states rely. So I largely agree. I mean, calling it unjust and unreasonable is obviously the the commission test, and I'm not sure it fails that test. But it is certainly true that subsidies will depress prices below the competitive level they would otherwise have achieved. That will impose a cost on competitive entry. That will potentially encourage new subsidies, and uh, it will certainly affect other other states without any question. Yeah. And this one actually, this is another trick one. This one came from PJM, but in 2018. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Joe, when five, flagging the unjust and unreasonable rate aspect, because in 2018, they were saying that. So yeah, um, yeah. I, I did not see this in their most recent filing, and I'll leave our listeners to draw whatever conclusions they want from that. All right, Joe, how are things with uh, PJM IMM relations these days? There's been a little bit of up and downs in the history. Are we in an upper or are we in a down right now? <laughs> What are you talking about? So, so yeah, yes. Uh, so yeah, yes. The PGM IMM relations, I think, are positive. All good. I would say we have frank and open discussion of views, as they say, in diplomatic circles. But PGM is definitely listening to us, and we're listening to them. And while we don't agree on lots of topics, I, I'm convinced we're making progress, and that PGM is increasingly interested in making decisions based on facts and evidence. Uh, so, I, so the relations are are good. Good. That's great to hear. Okay. All right. So as, as you both know, I, I was a, a reporter in a past life, I suppose. And several years ago, when I was covering a panel discussion on PJM's markets, in which a certain outspoken state regulator, who shall remain nameless for reasons that will become obvious, equated the threat you posed through the Moper to that of North Korean Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un, and his arsenal of nuclear weapons. I'm pretty sure you and the regulator saw me furiously scribbling down notes with the obvious intent of leading my article with that exchange, but you strongly advised me against it, saying something like, if you write that, I'll never answer one of your questions. I never used it, but now I'm wondering, Joe, how real of a threat was that, or were you just joking with me? Yeah, so um, so the comment from the unnamed regulator was obviously pretty off the wall, and, and uh but knowing the regulator and knowing their style, it was clearly a tongue-in-cheek reference to make clear that from his or her perspective that the MOPR was a really serious issue. So, I mean, the first thing it stands for is clearly states don't always agree with the market monitor. So I, I think that quote pretty clearly establishes that. But the, I mean, the second point is, I mean, obviously, I, I would never I would never threaten that I wouldn't talk to a reporter. I mean, that would be just silly for lots of reasons. 
But I mean, it raises a broader question, which is the we, the market monitor. We never make threats. We don't make threats to anybody. Uh, we've been accused of making threats. Pajamas accuses of making threats. Others accuses of making threats. But I think others actually have made threats, but we have never done that. And we would never do that. And in fact, in the liaison committee, when we could still listen in, there were accusations by some market participants that we made threats. There has never been one iota of evidence. We would never do that. Part of the reason that the liaison committee became secret and did not allow us uniquely to attend or, or did prevented us from attending is apparently so that certain market participants could continue to complain about us without us there. Now, why anyone wants to complain about us when we're not there so we can't answer, I do not know. But we do not make threats. There's no evidence we've ever made threats, and we wouldn't. It doesn't make any sense. So, no, of course, I didn't make a real threat to you. As you know, I continued talking to you. We're talking right now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, the whole the whole thing <laughs> was kind of, was kind of amusing. It was a it was a cold and rainy day in Philadelphia. I was sitting in the back. I was sitting in the back row, soaking wet, uh, having walked in <laughs> out of the rain. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> and then, then then that came out of the blue. Seems... It, it was well, and it, from a reporter standpoint, I mean, you're listening, you're listening, you're like, and then someone says something like that, you're like, well, okay, got my lead. There, there's yeah. the start. <laughs> yeah. You get your headline. All right. Terrific. Well, transitioning to, I don't know if it's more serious or less serious, but I mean, I'm, I'm kind of curious, Joe, I mean, you know, we're post COVID life is starting to resume, you know, obviously in 2020, we saw some extremely unique dynamics and particularly the energy markets. I mean, what are you seeing right now in the markets as we emerge? Uh, I mean, any changes or is demand still down? What, what, how's the future look here? Yeah. So, in 2020, demand was down significantly. Prices were down significantly to the lowest level ever in PGM. As one metric of that, not a single nuclear power plant in PGM covered its avoidable costs based on real-time prices in 2020. <clears throat> that's not necessarily how they sell, but that's just it's an interesting metric. Coal unit economics were significantly challenged. But 2021 has actually been quite different. Prices are up 50% year to year to date over 2020 load is up somewhat so the the markets i think are recovering quite quickly from covid and it was also the price levels were partly a result of the fact there was some cold weather in the winter so yeah i, I think i think the markets are are coming back post covid uh, i'm not sure when we'll all go back into the office i said a while ago we wouldn't go back until january 1st of next year i said that probably three or four months ago, it still seems realistic. Although some people probably go, some people in some offices will go back sooner. I don't think we will. So yeah, loads up, prices are up. So I think the, the markets are look quite different than they did during 2020. That's interesting. And how about your operations, Joe? I mean, you mentioned you're going to be out of the office till January. Have you get guys been challenged at all with the virtual world or has it been a pretty seamless transition for your office? Yeah, no, I think I think it's worked remarkably well. I, I was always a skeptic about working at home, but uh, I've become a convert. And I think <laughs> things have I think things have worked very well. I think my folks have reacted extremely well to it. Everyone's had their individual challenges with children at home and all that and dealing with COVID risk. But no, I think I, I'm very happy with the way that the market monitoring unit has has responded to this. I think we've continued to do our work with really out any glitches. There's the headline for this episode. PJM Market Monitor has changed his mind on a long-held belief. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Great. I like it. I like it. 
All right, Joe, last question. PJM and many stakeholders appear intent on implementing the tweaks to the ARR FTR construct recommended in the consultant's report rather than the whole cloth re-envisioning your team has campaigned for. And this is the market for buying and selling of future congestion on the transmission system. Do you intend to keep pressing on that or are the recommendations good enough for now? Yeah, no, we, we do. We, we think it's essential to get FTRs straightened out. The purpose of FTRs and ARRs is to return congestion to load. And the consultants actually finally recognized that, which was, I think, a key breakthrough. Uh, they then said, well, if you get 70% of congestion, that's good enough. Uh, whereas I don't think anyone would be satisfied ever with getting 70 cents on the dollar if they were owed a dollar. So we do intend to keep pressing it. We've continued to put out more and more detailed analysis. And, and we have now we can now analyze and have analyzed congestion being paid and returned to customers node by node, customer LSE by LSE, zone by zone, state by state. One of the interesting things is how differently different states and zones are treated under the current construct. So the short answer is, yeah, we, we do intend to keep pressing it. It's clearly wrong and it clearly is quite bad for customers and is not needed in any way. The current design is not needed in any way for the markets to keep working effectively and efficiently. Okay, it's now time for our favorite section of the show in which we offer unsolicited advice to someone whom we think needs it. Joe, you have two minutes to level one-on-one with anyone, anywhere, and anything you think he or she needs to hear. Who are you going with and what are you saying? Uh, I would say, um, without picking on a particular person, I would say decision makers, if that's not too um, vague for you. <laughs> and, and what I, w- I would ask decision makers in the PGM area in particular to rely on market incentives while recognizing all markets have rules. I would ask them to recognize that transparent competitive markets are the best way to ensure the reliability is purchased at least cost. I would ask them to recognize that there should be no inefficient barriers to entry, but also that there should be no inefficient removal of barriers to entry that are, reflect real economics. All capacity resources need to contribute to reliability in a comparable way. And last but not least, and I think this has not received anywhere near enough attention in BGM markets, the, the interaction of the gas pipeline and power side, market side, business model, those interactions need to be addressed. There's some very significant disconnect. I think Texas illustrated that. So that's my advice. Thank you. All right. And how about you, Glenn? So last month, my advice was to PJM stakeholders to let FERC know that you care about markets and that you want to see those benefits preserved. This month, I worry that my message from last month needs to be redirected to PJM in addition to FERC. PJM has always aspired to have the most effective and efficient of the market designs in the country. And we heard Joe talk about that earlier in the podcast. While changes have been made to the capacity, energy, and ancillary services markets, some of which were good, some of which were not so good, but all of which were hotly debated. Throughout these these debates, there was always a commitment by PJM to markets and their promise. PJM always seemed to care about markets and wanted its market structure to support robust competitive outcomes. And as I sit here today in May of 2021, I seriously worry that PJM is losing or has even lost its commitment to competitive markets. Why do I say that? Well, after listening to PJM tell 
stakeholders for eight months that it was listening. PJM provides its stakeholders with a proposed revision to the minimum offer price rule that sure looks like a massive retreat to its historic commitment to markets. We talked a lot about the MOPR earlier in this podcast. I really don't want to repeat that, and I'm not here to defend the MOPR or say the MOPR was, is without its challenges. However, based on its initial proposal to the PJM stakeholders, like we discussed earlier, there are a lot of people rightly asking whether PJM still has its commitments to competitive markets or have other priorities taken the place of that commitment to competitive markets. So this month, my advice, Rory, is to PJM and specifically its leadership. Stakeholders are listening, and right now they are hearing that PJM may may not have the passion for markets that it once had. If PJM is indeed retreating from its historic support for markets, it needs to be upfront. It needs to let stakeholders know that. It needs to communicate those changes. And we need to build a market structure that looks more like these other RTOs that, as Joe articulated earlier, are less successful than PJM. If not, if PJM still believes in markets and the promise and potential markets hold for consumers, PJM needs to show that in its proposals, and they need to show that in the proposals it puts before stakeholders and before FERC. All right. For my two minutes, I'd like to speak with Pennsylvania Department of Transportation Secretary Yasmin Gramian. First things first. I know it wasn't your idea to start the Transform I-76 project, and some of the plans seem like they actually will be improvements. Coordinating and streamlining the flow of traffic into and off of the highway makes a lot of sense. But once I'm there, the point of a highway is to move quickly from where I am to where I want to be, not trudge along so slowly that I know what radio station the guy in the car next to me is listening to. So the plan's first phase of installing variable speed limits based on backups somewhere up the line that I understand is going into effect sometime this month seems really wrongheaded. Now, instead of sitting in stop-dead traffic interspersed by brief periods of exhilarating open road for the 90 minutes it takes to go the 20-some miles from PJM to downtown Philly, a trip that should by all rights take like 30 minutes, we're just going to sit in slightly faster than stop-dead traffic for the whole 90 minutes on an otherwise open road because a sign is saying we can't go the usual speed limit, and you've empowered state troopers to try to enforce that. We've seen comments from law enforcement in other places where they've tried this idea, and it's extremely hard to enforce. So the plan seems ripe for creating more high-tension traffic enforcement situations that we've seen can end tragically. Even if the worst case doesn't happen, I can't tell you how irate I'm going to be when some Yahoo from the greater Northeast rides everybody's tail until he can slip through and speed to the next peloton of vehicles ahead while I'm sitting there trying to be good, chugging along whatever silly limit you posted this time. So I would ask that before you set this plan in stone and close the book, you really look hard at the impacts and the new problems it will assuredly create and get rid of it if, as I suspect, it mostly makes things worse. I hate driving 76, so much so that I have cobbled together a two-hour multimodal commute to PJM using the local transit system just to avoid driving it. But there are times and locations I have to go where there's really just no other choice. So whatever you do, please, for the love of getting from point A to point B while we're young, don't make it worse. Okay, that's my two minutes. Joe, it sounds like it sounds like you uh <laughs> you've driven I-76 a couple of times, huh? Yeah, just a few times, yeah. <laughs> well, uh th- there's much that we didn't get to today, but we definitely put in a solid session here. Joe, it has once again been a pleasure. Any final thoughts from you? 
No, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. I think these are your podcasts are really great and they're informative for everybody. So no, thank thanks for the thanks for the uh, invitation. We are definitely looking forward to having you back for your third session. Uh, we don't have you on a particular schedule. But pretty much whenever the Moper pops up, I think is when 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 we bring you back. So <laughs> so we'll have you back for that. Glenn, how about you? Any final thoughts? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm kind of curious who's going to win this race to the five timers club, whether it's going to be Chatterjee, <laughs> Bowering or Glick. I mean, they're, they're neck and neck right now. So we'll have to see how that works out. But thank, thanks so much for joining us, Joe. This is fantastic. It's always fun talking energy markets with you and your insights are incredibly valuable. So keep, keep up the good work and keep up the conversation. Thanks very much. Yeah, well, we'll have to see if we can get a uh, frequent buyer's discount on all the jackets that we're going to need. Uh, I'll start, <laughs> yes. start looking into that. Yeah. Anyway, thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time, be excellent to each other. Hey, thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.